Good day, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years to the time of 1970, and we talk about the hockey and sports news that took place during that time. This week, we're looking at the seven days between June 29th and July 5th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and their help has been critical in enabling us to look at all the news items from the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce some amazingly great craft beers and have some of the finest pub food on the planet. The patio is now open in stage two of our recovery from this pandemic and the food is just as good as it's always been. Once things get back to normal, I'd love to meet any of our listeners at the Breakwall for a beer and a burger. In last week's show, we had a few interesting stories for you. We talked about uh, some teams switching training camps around, shuffling the locations, uh, so to speak. Some of them thought they were saving money in the case of the Buffalo Sabres and went to Peterborough. Their boss, Punch Imlac, figures it's better to get the, the boys away from the bright lights of the big city and he can keep a better eye on them in a small town like Peterborough. Oh, we talked about NHL President Clarence Campbell uh, expounding on the uh, chances of National Hockey League expansion taking place in the very near future. And we talked about the results from the American Airlines National Hockey League Players Golf Tournament uh, at a country club just north of Toronto, and uh, a good time was had by all. In this week's show, while it wasn't a terribly busy uh, week in the hockey world, we did find that there were a few news stories we wanted to talk about, enough that uh, we have a, a basically a full show, not as long as during the season, of all the news that took place. Uh, we had planned on doing some excerpts of from some interviews we did, but we'll save those for upcoming weeks when there will be almost no hockey news to talk about. What we do have this week, the Oakland Seals kerfuffle about their ownership. It looks like it's come to an end. Uh, we'll talk about the new owner of the team and the uh, plans he had for the Seals. Uh, we have some big changes on the horizon for the American Hockey League, which of course is the top farm system for the National Hockey League. And we have some news from the small town of Perry Sound, Ontario, who honored their most favorite son during the week last week. There are quite a few other uh, hockey news and notes up uh, this week as well, so we might as well get right at it. So the week 50 years ago began on a highly anticipated note as most people in the hockey world were waiting for the news of who would become the new owner of the Oakland Seals. The National Hockey League had designated Monday, June 29th as the day on which the Board of Governors would decide who was going to be the owner of the NHL franchise, the Seals. You'll remember that the former owners, Transnational Communication of New York City, had been found to have defaulted on payments they were required to make as part of their original purchase agreement 
when they acquired the team from the original owners, Seals Limited, a group that was headed by Barry Van Gerbeck. Van Gerbeck, you will remember, with his group went to court to try and have the team put back in his hands so that they could sell it ostensibly to Oakland Athletics of Major League Baseball owner Charles O. Finley. When the court decision finally came down, a San Francisco judge awarded the team to Finley uh, for a sale price of about $3.4 million. Now, Finley had been the only person at the time of the decision who had expressed a valid interest in the club and the $3.4 million offer Finley made was lowball, to be sure, and a really good deal for Finley, even if it was the Moribund Seals franchise. Well, Transnational Communications and 20% shareholders, the Knox Brothers of Buffalo, New York, owners of the new Buffalo Sabres, they applied to the courts to halt that action if a more lucrative offer from another buyer could be arranged. That other buyer turned out to be one Jerry Seltzer, a resident of the Bay Area and the owner of the International Roller Derby League, and he had the money he thought to purchase the team. When news of Seltzer's interest uh, surfaced, Finley immediately upped his bid to $4.1 million. That didn't deter Seltzer, who said that his bid for the team would be $4.5,400,000 more than that of Finley, and in 1970, $400,000 was quite a chunk of change. Now that convinced a judge at a higher level than the original one who awarded the team to Finley to order that Seltzer and Finley both be allowed to present competing bids for the team to the National Hockey League Board of Governors. This was, of course, to allow transnational communication and the Knoxes to recoup as many dollars as possible from the sale of the team. The Knoxes, as you remember, owned 20% of the Seals as a result of their buying in long before the Sabres franchise was awarded. And what they're trying to do is let Seymour and Nordy Knox get back some of the money they invested in good faith in the team. So all of that led to the National Hockey League Board of Governors meeting on June 29th. And at that conflab, the governors were to hear bids from both parties, both Seltzer and Finley, and then make what was supposed to be an impartial decision on the fate of the franchise. Finley, however, was considered the front runner basically because he had the very influential owner of the Detroit Red Wings, Bruce Norris, backing his efforts to get the seals. The meeting began on Monday morning and it was a long, drawn-out, five-hour affair. Both sides presented offers, identical in their amount of $4.5 million for the team, and that left the governors to decide which of the two men would be a more attractive owner for the team. Now, you have to wonder what would make either guy more attractive to the National Hockey League Board of Governors. Right away, Finley, being buddy with one of the Norrises, had to be a favorite we know that the NHL was often referred to as a Norris House League, and Bruce Norris was one of the reasons for that. Seltzer's presentation was the first of the two, and it was quite an in-depth uh, 
display, I guess you could say. He had charts, he had graphics, he had easels with all kinds of figures and, and graphics, as we said, to display to the owners. And it took a couple of hours at least to get through it all. Charlie Finley, in his presentation, spoke for only 10 minutes. After the bids were presented, the governors just took votes on each bid with very little deliberation to award the team to Finley. Now, here's what happened. Seltzer, uh, presenting first, the uh, owners looked at everything he did. Some of them, it was reported, dozed off during the lengthy presentation, only to be awakened by nudges from people sitting next to them. The Board of Governors voted 9-5 to five to reject the Seltzer bid outright. That would mean that Finley was the only guy left in the race, and after his quick 10-minute presentation, knowing that the board had already voted 5-9 to nine basically against uh, Seltzer, Finley made his 10-minute presentation, and the vote was 12-2 to two to accept Finley's plan and award him the franchise. According to NHL President Clarence Campbell, the decision was based on which group would best guarantee the future of the franchise, especially with regard to keeping the team in the San Francisco Bay Area. The only condition that the National Hockey League governors placed on the final approval of Finley as owner was that he would take care of all of the team's outstanding debt. One of the larger pieces of that debt is about $120,000 owed by the team to its own arena in Oakland. Now you wonder maybe what really made the decision for the governors easier or less easy to approve the uh, awarding of the team to Finley. Well, we did some digging. Uh, actually, we didn't do the digging. The reporters from 1970 did the digging. And this is what uh, one of the facts that was found to have swayed the Board of Governors. There were around maybe a little less than a million dollars in the SEALs bank accounts already that would have been given to the team from the expansion fees given by Buffalo and Vancouver when they joined the National Hockey League. That money was, uh, say, a little less than a million dollars. We're not entirely sure. There are varying reports of how much money was there. But the plans the two groups had for that money were radically different, and that may have really convinced the NHL owners that Finley was their guy. That money was already in the SEALs bank accounts, but because of the ongoing court deliberations, that money was frozen. No one, not even TNC, could get at it because of their bankruptcy status. So Jerry Seltzer's plan had been to use this money already in the bank accounts as part of his financing to be arranged to purchase the franchise. Charlie Finley, on the other hand, said that his plan was to leave that expansion money untouched in the bank, keeping it for unseen, unforeseen operating expenses that are always arising in the operation of a professional sports franchise as they always do. 
Charlie, of course, being the owner of a baseball team, is quite familiar with the pratfalls that come with owning uh, a big league sports franchise. So he knew that that money would eventually come in handy. And that was the radical change or difference between the seltzer bid and the one from Charlie Finley. Apparently, that basic difference in the two bids, real or perceived, though it may have been, was one of the main excuses that the Board of Governors made in awarding Finley the Seals. Much was made of the fact that the Governors were more inclined to give the team to Finley because he was using all of his own money and that this would be a one-man operation rather than the group of owners, including a member of the Oakland Raiders NFL franchise ownership group, uh, rather than the group of owners that Seltzer had brought together for this purpose. Word crept out on Monday afternoon and the reaction was immediate around the hockey world. Of course, there was much speculation on what the controversial Finley, ever the showman, would do to attempt to make the hockey club relevant in the Bay Area. There was a usual talk about whiter colored skates, skating seals during intermission, and even a skating donkey, which of course is Finley's mascot for his baseball team. And Finley, he did nothing to discourage all that speculation. He told Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail that he was considering having trained seals in an aquarium present during the intermission and pre-game activities and that for the team to succeed, it would be necessary to inject a lot of, quote, color into the operation, alluding to the questions about colored skates. It also seemed uh, quite likely that Charlie was going to incorporate the colors of green and gold into the SEALs uniforms because that's the color of his baseball team, green and gold. Those colors, however, were not chosen by Charlie Finley, but rather by Mrs. Finley, who made them the color for their two daughters when they were born, both red-headed girls, and they were always dressed in green and gold long before the Oakland Athletics became Finley's team. Well, the uh, idea of white skates did not sit well with the National Hockey League governors. One owner quickly went uh, public with his disdain for the white skate idea, and that was the influential William Wirtz of the Chicago Blackhawks. Clarence Campbell, of all people, actually went on record as cautioning Finley that white skates are for girl figure skaters and not for hockey players. Charlie Finley, now confirmed as owner of the team, replied that uh, he wasn't going to be bossed around about skates or anything like that, but he did say that what he would do is consult with his players. But he added that he found that with his baseball team, when he incorporated the white shoes into the athletics uniforms, they were very popular with the players and fans alike. And when the players were asked if they wanted to change back to the traditional black baseball shoe, they resisted saying that they really liked the new look the white ones gave them. However, Finley did say he'd go with what the players felt was best and he didn't want to burden them with something that the players felt might be, quote, sissified. Where have we heard that in present day language? Mike Milbury, were you around then? 
Well, Mr. Finley uh, did say all the right things, and he actually made a lot of sense, showing that he he had some experience as a sports owner. He said that the only way to build a financially successful sports franchise is to build a winner on the field, or in this case, on the ice. To that end, Finley announced immediately that coach Freddie Glover was going to remain in his position. There would be no doubt about that. Finley had been talking to a lot of the owners around the league and general managers and to a man. They all said that Freddie Glover was the right man to coach the Seals. And if he were to become available, some of their teams would probably pick him up. Finley made no immediate announcement on the fate of general manager Frank Selke Jr., but within the next couple of days, Charlie sat down with executive vice president of the SEALs, Bill Torrey, whom he asked to stay on. Uh, he was retained in that capacity as executive VP. Torrey gave Finley a full briefing on the entire hockey operation. And the very next day, Charlie asked Frank Selke to stay on as the SEALs general manager, to which Frank eagerly agreed. And so it looked like as a tumultuous chapter in the NHL history was closing, something even more controversial might have been about to emerge. It wouldn't take long for Hockey World to see what Charlie Finley had in mind. The American Hockey League gave us some news this week on their evolution in light of the latest round of National Hockey League expansion. And we have to thank Hans Tanner of the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle for his fine reporting. He's probably the most dedicated reporter for hockey's top minor league. And if you want to know what's going on in the AHL, he has a pretty good idea. He's very well plugged in to, to that community. The American Hockey League had just finished its week-long annual meetings held this year in Castle Harbor in beautiful Bermuda. Uh, Hans Tanner reported that for the upcoming season, the American Hockey League would drop from nine to eight teams, and that's because of the loss of the Buffalo franchise to the National Hockey League, which became the Sabres. But you wouldn't have to fear for the uh, continued existence of the AHL as it looked like the league would have as many as 13 teams for the 1971-72 season. At the annual meetings, Norfolk, Virginia had already been accepted for 71-72 and would be known as the Tidewater Wings, hooked up with the NHL Detroit Red Wings. Other uh, expansion franchises for the AHL were expected to be announced over the following months, and they would include franchises in Boston, which of course be a Bruins franchise, a franchise in Toronto, a development team for the Maple Leafs, a team in Long Island hooked up with the Rangers, and former Buffalo Bisons owner Ruby Pastor would own that new team in Long Island. Another team that was scheduled to come in, Richmond, Virginia, and that would be where the Buffalo Sabres would revive the AHL Buffalo franchise for that city. It was also reported that it's expected for the 1972-73 season, New Haven, Connecticut would join the American Hockey League as a farm team 
for the Minnesota North Stars. Now, all of these above moves are being made as part of the indemnification settlement that the National Hockey League had agreed to with the American Hockey League for their intrusion upon the Buffalo Bisons' territory by the new Sabres. The Bisons' franchise would be allowed to remain dormant for the 70-71 season before re-emerging in Richmond the next season as the Sabres' farm team. Still on the minor professional hockey front, the Western Hockey League released its schedule this week and neither Calgary nor Edmonton are anywhere to be found on the slate of games. That means that the Vancouver Canucks of the NHL, the new expansion Canucks, will not establish a Western farm team as they had said they wanted to do for their first NHL season. That leaves the American Hockey League Rochester Americans as their only, or at least their only top, uh, minor league farm team. Another item of note from the Western Hockey League suggests that former Vancouver Western Hockey League coach and general manager Joe Crozier is teaming up with former player Andy Bathgate, and they are going to try and purchase 70% ownership of the Western League Phoenix Roadrunners and that of course is the new franchise that came on just a year or so ago. The asking price for 70% of this team is about $200,000 and if you know Joe Crozier he's probably got that amount of money hidden in cash in a mattress somewhere around the house. As, as we told you, the junior hockey is also making some news lately, and we got a little more this week, and it might not be of the positive variety. Not everybody was happy with the changes that the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association made recently to the junior hockey landscape in Canada. Most uh, upset are the Junior A teams in Ontario who announced that no Ontario Hockey Association teams will play against Western Canada champions next spring. And just to show how serious the OHA is about this dispute, the Ontario Junior A Hockey Council has adopted a schedule for next season lasting three weeks longer than it had in previous years. That would, of course, leave no time for national playoffs or what we call the Memorial Cup. Now, what could possibly prompt a move like this to have Ontario and possibly even Quebec uh, just say they're not playing against the West? Well, here's the reason. When the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association was wooing the Western Canada Junior Hockey League back into their fold, remember they'd been gone for the past two years playing basically as an outlaw league, uh, they had to make concessions to the Westerners in the form of cash from, NA, from the NHL for player development and travel expense money. And they had to make some other concessions as well, which we'll tell you about. Now, the Ontario and Quebec teams would also receive the player development money from the NHL, but they weren't going to get any of the travel expense money that was being given to by the Western teams. Now, the other concessions to the West, and this was the one that really stuck in the craw of the OHL. They were given the right to retain 
four overage players for the first year of this agreement and two overage players for the second year. Western teams had always been using a few players over the age of 20 who were allowed to play if they didn't play pro. They stayed in the Western Canada League. The CAHA allowed them to do this, but they didn't give teams in the East that same privilege. That would give, in a Memorial Cup playoff, the Western teams a decided advantage over their Eastern counterparts in a playoff series. The Ontario Hockey Association teams sent a telegram outlining their stance on the overage players to the CAHA and to the National Hockey League, and they expressed surprise and disappointment that hockey's big league would go along with such a scheme, placing one league on a different basis than all the rest. So this, of course, puts the Memorial Cup playoffs in in quite a conundrum. Would they even have playoffs without it being a national championship? The Memorial Cup is emblematic of junior supremacy in the country of Canada. But here's something that had yet to be determined by the CAHA after the junior reorganization. Remember, they split junior A hockey into two tiers, tier one or tier two. The top teams, the OHA, the Quebec Major Junior League, they would be tier one. The Western Canada League would be tier one. All the other leagues would be tier two. They hadn't decided to this point whether it would be the Memorial Cup that Tier 1 would play for or Tier 2, which really made no sense because Tier 2 teams were not the best teams and this was supposed to be a cup for the top junior team in Canada. really made no little sense, but that was the state of affairs as this was all taking place. If it turns out that the Eastern teams were refusing to play the Western teams next spring, this whole thing would be a tremendous embarrassment to the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, who's already having to deal with their, my opinion, quite correct decision to withdraw from international hockey. It just seems that if you're not in professional hockey, championships are in disarray at this point in history. So at this point in time, in this first week of July, 1970, this whole reorganization thing for junior hockey was proven to have created larger and more serious headaches for the uh, Canadian Amateur Hockey Association than they had even wildly anticipated. So the CAHA convened a meeting with uh, the Ontario Hockey Association for July 7th in Toronto with the attendees being uh, the Ontario Hockey Association Junior Council, uh, the representatives from the Quebec Major Junior League and, and the Western Junior League in Canada, and CAHA President Earl Dotson and Executive Director Gordon Jux. Now, if things weren't complicated enough, the Northern Ontario Hockey Association was also upset with the CAHA. The NOHA had been reduced to Tier 2 status, meaning that its teams could no longer compete for the Memorial Cup if, as it seemed to be logical, the Memorial Cup would be competed for by Tier 1 teams. That would mean teams like Thunder Bay, who always were good contenders for the Memorial Cup, weren't even going to get that right to compete anymore for the big trophy. Seems like this is happening all over the hockey world these days. The supposed adults in the room are mangling things up beyond recognition for the kids. 
I don't know if this will ever change. I wonder if 50 years from now, we'll still have adults messing things up for the kids. I'll bet it will. We have some more news this week about the condition of Michelle Briere, the young uh, star player for the Pittsburgh Penguins, who was injured in that awful car accident in mid-May. On July 2nd, the Penguins team spokesman said that Michelle had regained a low level of consciousness. According to a wire service report, we find out later that the Penguins really didn't say this, and you're going to find out why. I don't know who reported this. We're trying to get down to who, uh, but this was one of those unattributed stories that you kind of suspect who it came from, but you really don't know. Uh, but this uh, statement purported to have come from a Penguins unnamed spokesperson, said that uh, Briere was sort of regaining a level of consciousness after the accident. The hospital, however, said that this was not the case, and we can't understand why anybody released anything at all. Well, this report actually surfaced throughout uh, North America, and many uh, people were reported that Briere had regained a level of consciousness and use of limbs and other good symptoms. The statement, alleged to come from the team, said that Briere was able to recognize his fiance, his brother, and teammate John Pronovo and had regained, as we said, more use of his limbs. Also mentioned was the fact that Michelle was able to take soft foods for the first time, but those soft foods were baby food, and basically jello. The report said that with normal development, it'd be two or three weeks before Michelle's speech abilities return. The following day, Notre Dame Hospital in Montreal followed up that statement, again, alleged to have come from the Penguins, but people are saying, uh, Penguins were later saying that wasn't true. The hospital followed up by saying that Briere had not regained any state of consciousness. The statement said the type of brain injury that Michelle suffered at the brainstem is at the seat of consciousness. Uh, there's been a general improvement in his condition, but even when he regains full consciousness, it's going to take at least a month before doctors can say whether he will be able to function normally or even ever play hockey again. The statement from the hospital emphasized that Michelle Briere had not regain consciousness at any level and was not able to recognize persons or words. So it had seemed one day to be very encouraging news, turned out very sadly to be a false alarm. And while there'd been some improvement in the young hockey star's condition, this news is not particularly great. Well, it was quite a week for the best young hockey player on the planet, Bobby Orr of the Boston Bruins. Last weekend, Bobby was the main attraction at the American Airlines National Hockey League Players Golf Tournament at the Board of Trade Country Club north of Toronto. Bobby attracted large crowds at every hole on the course, crowds usually made up of swooning young teenage girls. Later in the week, Bobby played at a couple of other Ontario courses, and word got out that he was on those links. Crowds of onlookers swelled around his foursome as well. On Friday evening, 
Bobby was a guest at a state dinner given in Ottawa by the Canadian government to honor outstanding young Canadian citizens. Bobby was the guest of Canadian Governor General Roland Michener, and he met and had some private time with Britain's Prince Charles. This would be hockey royalty meeting up with United Kingdom royalty. Bobby had quite a, a in-depth conversation apparently with the prince who seemed quite impressed with the young man's poise and his demeanor. Bobby referred to Prince Charles as just one of the guys. He said that Prince Charlie didn't seem to have much of an idea what hockey was but was really easy to talk to. Bobby did say that one of his bodyguards was quite a fan and knew a lot about the game. The very next day to wind up what had been just an absolutely madhouse of a week for Bobby Orr, uh, his hometown of Perry Sound, Ontario had decided to hold a Bobby Orr Day in which he was honored for his various hockey accomplishments. Now Perry Sound is located on Georgian Bay in central Ontario and has a population in 1970 of 5,000 736 people. Yet on this Saturday at a parade held to kick off the event, it was estimated that at least 20,000 people lined the parade route and where the uh, final reception was held at the end of the parade. There were floats and pipe bands and majorettes and the enthusiasm generated by the day that was something that had never been seen before and probably not since in Perry Sound. Bobby's family, of course, was part of the parade and sitting up front, front and center in front of everybody, calm but intensely proud, was Bobby's 71-year-old grandmother, who said when asked that she was proud of all of her 25 grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. She was also proud of the fact that at age 71, she still works every day as a nurse at the Perry Sound Hospital. Two other Perry Sound natives who currently play in the National Hockey League were also present and honored as well, even though Bobby was a star and they recognize that. Those two were Terry Crisp and Gary Sabrin, both of whom play for the St. Louis Blues. They acknowledge Bobby's greatness and they didn't disappoint with their comments. Of course, during the reception and at the City Hall and everywhere else that they went during this day, there were stories being swapped. And one of the more interesting ones came from Perry Sounds, Mr. Hockey, a fellow by the name of Alex Eager. Alex was asked to revitalize the uh, town's failing minor hockey system back when Bobby was very young, actually just when he was starting out in hockey. It wasn't because of Bobby, the system just wasn't working. So Mr. Eager retained old friend Bucko McDonald, who was a former Toronto Maple Leaf, and he came to Perry Sound to help coach and reorganize the entire uh, minor hockey system. It was Bucko who met Bobby very early when he started playing and right away he recognized that the kid was something special. Bucko said Bobby needed to be a defenseman and despite the process from Bobby's uh, dad, Doug Orr, that's what happened. Bobby was made to be a defenseman and that set him on the journey that he has led to where he is today. Bucko said that he told people back then that he thought Bobby Orr was another Doug Harvey. Bucko said on this day, you know what? I may have been wrong about that. 
I set my standards too low. Bobby's the best there ever was. Buckle McDonald is not incorrect in that assessment. We have a few other newsy notes from the past week, and we'll get to them now. The St. Louis Blues have elevated Lynn Patrick from the position of managing director to executive vice president. Patrick was the first general manager that the Blues ever had. He hired Scotty Bowman as his assistant. The Blues also announced that they have hired Sports Illustrated hockey writer Gary Ronberg as an assistant to owner Sidney Solomon Jr. And they also announced the signing of their number two draft pick, and that was Mike Lowe, who played at Loyola College in Montreal last season. Mike is a speedy left winger. You will remember that last week we told you about Clarence Campbell maybe having a couple of too many beverages and talking about the more impending National Hockey League expansion. Well, Clarence, I think, probably uh, wanted to clarify his statement a bit from last week. Uh, he said there will be no new teams added to the National Hockey League before 1973. Campbell said that the statements attributed to him at a banquet in New Brunswick were made, quote, hypothetically, and there was no consideration being given at this time to any further expansion by the National Hockey League beyond the 14 teams that they already uh, have under their umbrella. Well, of course, this, this story got out, and uh, a couple days after this, Dink Carroll the long-time, now semi-retired uh, sports columnist of the Montreal Gazette, and a guy who's very plugged into the hockey scene, he reported that if the National Hockey League was to expand in 1972 to Atlanta, Baltimore, Kansas City, and Seattle, the only reason for doing such a crazy thing, for embarking on such a crazy plan, would be for television reasons. The NHL is almost pathetic in his desperation to get a national TV contract in the United States. They want to have a coast-to-coast hockey network with the NHL on TV in every American home. Dink doesn't seem to have very much faith that this would be a successful endeavor. The Philadelphia Flyers made a minor player move this week, selling defenseman Ray LaRose to Denver of the Western Hockey League. Now, Ray played last year in the Western Hockey League for the Flyers farm team, the Seattle Totems, who this year will be the farm team of the New York Rangers. So the Flyers decided to send Ray to Denver, where they got a pretty good deal of cash from Denver General Manager Rudy Pillis. A couple weeks ago, we reported that uh, former Toronto Maple Leaf great goaltender Turk Broda had decided to leave the Quebec Aces of the American Hockey League as coach and return back home to Ontario. Well, the Aces found a replacement this week, and if nothing else, it's going to be very interesting in Quebec City. Former Hamilton Red Wings coach Eddie Bush has been retained as the new bench boss for the Aces. Eddie, of course, was let go by the Hamilton Red Wings when that Ontario Hockey Association Junior A team was sold to Torontonian Nick Durbano. 
you know, these off-season hockey banquets were a staple of uh, communities all around Canada during the 60s and 70s, and they always seemed to have somebody making a statement, usually after a few adult beverages, that made news around the country. Well, Red Berenson made a statement this week. It wasn't really terribly news, and it was really quite, uh, I thought, a very wise statement to make at one of these question and answer periods at a banquet this week red was asked how the uh, expansion teams in the national hockey league could achieve parity with the uh, established teams a little more quickly red had a very ready answer and it could show it showed that he's given a lot of thought to this as president of the National Hockey League Players Association. Red Berenson proposes that for the intra-league draft that's held every year for the next two years, protected lists for each team be reduced from 18 players to just 10, only for two years. He also said that the exemption from the draft for first-year professionals should also be wiped out. That would give the expansion teams a chance to grab equal talent to that of the established counterparts. But I can tell you this, Red, and he knows this, the National Hockey League governors, those old guys that have been around for years, they practice the golden rule. Those that have the gold make the rules. And the rules are not going to change to help out the new brethren in that closed society. Here's a nice little story. The city of Houston, after a two-year absence from professional hockey, is getting a team again. Well, it's sort of semi-professional. It's the Eastern Hockey League, who has a Southern Division, and next year, the city of Houston will be part of that Southern Division. Harvard University's hockey program seems to be getting a bit more attention these days as well with some very prominent high school hockey players from around the United States agreeing to play for Harvard and the latest one is a young Michigan hockey player by the name of Bob Goodnow. Uh, Bob made a name for himself playing his minor hockey Peewee and Bantam in the Detroit area with a couple of kids named Mark and Marty Howe. Yeah you've heard of them. And our final hockey note of the week, Pittsburgh Penguins coach and general manager Red Kelly had a broken leg this week. He suffered a broken leg playing in a softball game in Pittsburgh. It's not a serious break. It's just a small bone in the leg. They didn't even give the, the technical name for it. So I can't give you that. But Red says he'll be fit as a fiddle and ready to go by the time training camp rolls around in September. So what have we learned from this week's episode? Well, we learned the identity of the new owner of the Oakland Seals, and he is, as expected, Oakland Athletics baseball owner Charles O. Finley. Now we gotta wonder what effect will Charlie O have on the staid old ways of the National Hockey League governors who have been very resistant to change unless it puts actual money in their pocket for decades. We also learned that while he's loved pretty much everywhere he goes, Bobby Orr, there left no doubt, he's definitely the favorite son of Perry Sound, Ontario. And we had some updates on the uh, condition of Pittsburgh Penguin star Michelle Briere. And not all the news, unfortunately, 
was uh, what we wanted to hear. Next week, we have the following stories for you. We uh, have Charlie Finley revealing more about his plans for his new hockey team, the Oakland Seals, including some goofy trade rumors that were circulating that Charlie wouldn't deny. But guess what? After all this, there's still talk that the sale of the club might hit yet another snag. Can you imagine that? We also have a, a little, a few words about Gordy Hall talking about his career and contract planning. And we get a progress report on Ted Green and the preparations he's making as he tries to return to the National Hockey League this fall after missing the entire 69-70 season with that fractured skull. And we'll have much more as well. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all of his efforts in getting this out every week. The Rural Alberta Advantage, a very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, gives us our intro and exit music, and they're actually uh, busily writing some new music remotely during the pandemic and hoping to get back to playing shows sometime in the near future. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course all the many publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Council of Council of Dads podcast where Andy Cole and his friend Cole Osborne take a deep dive into all the issues surrounding the popular uh, NBC television show Council of Dads. It's a really quite unique and entertaining idea for a podcast. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years, on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and we now have a YouTube channel where this podcast is hosted as well. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into the show. We're having a great time bringing this to you each and every week. It's actually kept me, uh, or allowed me, I should say, to keep my sanity during this pandemic, and it's given me a, a goal to achieve each week. Thanks again for everyone, and uh, on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks.